hello to you. Welcome back to the Sam Perspective podcast. Of course, this is me, Alfie Faber. I am a filmmaker in Sydney, and I love to chat to the people who combine sight and sound in film. Uh, Isn't that fun? It's pretty broad, and it's basically just anyone whose work interests me in film. Um, You know, everyone wants you to have a brand these days. Everyone wants you to have a niche. I say, fuck the niche. We go with what's fun. Um, And today, the person we're having fun with is the absolute legendary Maya Newell. Um, She's easily one of my favorite doco filmmakers in the world. Um, Her work is full of love and empathy in a way that I think all art that's about people should be. Um, She often makes films about like underrepresented communities. So her first feature doco called Gaby Baby uh, followed the children of gay parents. And her second feature, um, In My Blood It Runs, follows a young Indigenous teenage boy, Dewan, in Alice Springs, which is Central Australia for you foreign listeners, um, as he struggles to find a sense of identity in the English school system, which doesn't incorporate his traditional beliefs or culture. Um, I think her films demonstrate the power and capacity of documentary to create empathy in an audience, to allow an audience to understand an experience they haven't lived themselves, which is so important in political discussions to emotionally understand someone's position. And she goes to great lengths to involve her participants in the creative development of her projects, crediting them as collaborators. Um, I met up with her to chat about her most recent film, The Dream Life of Georgie Stone. It's a half-hour Netflix original, and it follows Georgie Stone, a transgender teen girl in Melbourne who helped change national law around access to gender-affirming treatment for trans young people. Um, Like all of Maya's films, it's a super intimate portrait that allows you to emotionally connect with the experiences of someone who's often at the center of political discussion, but so rarely gets to actually speak. Um, It includes like archival footage from all 19 years of Georgie's life. Maya was involved in filming it over, I think, six years or so, a really long time. Um, And it's an incredibly visceral and beautiful experience. Um, Look, no one here doesn't have Netflix, so go check it out. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, So we met up uh, to do the interview at the study room of a local library in Marrickville. If you know Sydney, you know that that Marrickville has like the worst air traffic of anywhere in Sydney. So there's a couple of planes, but I think we got pretty lucky for the most part. Anyway, here is Maya. Uh, So Maya Newell, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Can you tell me, Maya, how uh, did you kind of like get into film? I know you started at UTS. It's always hard to know where the interest in film and like art making, I suppose, arose. But I know that even in 
high school, I was really fascinated with telling stories. I was actually talking about this in an interview the other day and I was reminded of just how influenced I was by the work of Tracy Moffat. I was actually making a lot of um, art, like visual art at that time, and I saw her films, um, like film series, it's a montage series called Art and Lip and... Um, love and they're these beautiful collations of um, like montage footage of like movies throughout history and she recuts them into these narratives that you know for instance the film love shows the story from like being drawn to someone and being admiring them and falling in love and then there's like betrayal and revenge and she follows it right through until there's like this sort of feminist murder scenes. So she's sort of recutting um, our history through like Hollywood films. Um, and I decided to make my own version of that when I was in maybe year nine or something yeah. and just spent weeks and weeks at home watching movies and like ripping them and mm. re-editing into this story, which is about boundaries and borders and breaking them down and sort of breaking free and that history in our public consciousness of, um, like, refugees and, you know, um, people um, entrapped in mental health institutions and um, all sorts of people who are crossing boundaries and borders um, on their pathway to freedom and realised that I really loved just spending time with myself telling stories. Um, I think it's not everyone that likes sitting in a dark room by themselves for hours and hours on end. But um, And you, you know, you realise something about yourself and like the place where creativity is born. Um, and then I just went on making films in high school and actually won a scholarship to go to uh, Sydney Film School right out of school. And I went, okay, maybe I'll just take a year out of going to uni and go and do this like fun film school thing. Um, and that's when I had a brush up with documentary filmmaking, mm. um, actually kind of by chance because on my year, like in my, you know, the big sort of film project, I was going to be like the director and cinematographer and then I broke my leg the day before the shoot and couldn't do it. And so it was sort of this weird twist of fate that made me sort of pick up the camera and go, maybe I'll try a documentary because oh. um, I missed all of the like fiction productions. Oh, really? um, all of their shooting periods. Yeah. And I made a documentary about an incredible toy collector who was in, um, had a shop in Stanmore in the inner West. Mm. Uh, his name was Richard Blackie. Yeah. And he was a total eccentric who I think many people didn't really understand. But I spent these, you know, three, four months from when I was 17, 18, just with him filming in his shop all of these toy collections and creatures that he'd shared and made his life with um, and, yeah, just got just totally fell in love with documentary and that you can be this, you know, single soul um, person in the world. You don't have to rely on a big crew of people. You don't have to, like, write a script. You can kind of be at the chance of, of life and what it throws at you and, you know, watch the, a relationship develop and see a story unfold and then... Um, kind of the script writing almost comes later. Mm. So, um, yeah, I really fell in love with documentary mm. and have been, yeah, making making them ever since. Yeah. And so you kind of, um, fiction was never really something you even 
managed to try out? No, not mm. really. Mm. I, I, I mean, I now being older, I feel like there's not too much difference in a way between nonfiction and fiction in terms of like your ability to tell a story. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I think that in the future I can see myself you know, working on projects that are lean more on fiction or on hybrid fiction or, you know, using real people in, in their own stories to tell. I think there's a lot of fluidity between the two genres. So you mentioned, like, Tracy Moffat's work really inspiring you as a young person, but were there documentary filmmakers that drew you to that or was it the when you kind of discovered it by chance? Oh, I think there's, I mean, there's incredible influences the whole way through all of our careers at various points. Um, I think that I really got to understand documentary in a way from watching a beautiful film called um, Up the Yangtze by a, a Chinese-Canadian filmmaker called Yong Chang. And I saw that at Sydney Film Festival and heard him speak and really just had a kind of eye-opening, you know, moment where I realised that the documentaries that we make could look like fiction, they could feel like fiction, Mm -hmm. they could, um, you know, be very creative, they don't have to be talking heads, they don't have to feel like you're in the world of Mm -hmm. non-fiction. And that film had a huge influence on me. And it ended up going and working as a um, camera assistant on his films for oh, a number cool. of years yeah. on a film called The Fruit Hunters and yeah. um, China Heavyweight in Sichuan province in wow. in China for a number of years, which probably was also a really formative time. Yeah, that's cool. So were most of those docos in China? Uh, China Heavyweight is, yeah. but... Um, the Fruit Hunters is set all over the world. It's wow. about people who spend their lives hunting and, you know, being obsessed and fascinated by very uh, rare exotic varieties of fruit. Oh, that's cool. It's a great <laughs> premise. Um, I Because of, like, uh, the, the number of stuff you had done and the kind of incredible amount of time and persistence it takes to make a feature length of doc I had kind of always assumed that you kind of jumped out of film school and straight into shooting these like years-long projects but was there a lot of like work helping on other people's stuff yeah I mean I think that was the most significant learning period after film school was on Jung's films um, and also because in documentary you're such a tiny crew so mm. you're out there with you know with the subjects on the drama and there's like three people there and Mm. so you're really learning I was really able to like learn that craft and watch directing in action um but yeah other than that when I came back from um yeah I also jumped into making Gabby Baby Mm. um with Charlotte Mars who I went to UTS, uh, studied media and communications with um, there, and we built a really beautiful friendship, which Mm. essentially became the foundation for Gaby Baby. Mm. Um, I'd been thinking for many years about how to tackle this story that I felt like I needed to birth that was inside me about Mm. uh, growing up with queer parents and the way the world kind of looks upon that. And looks down on us as, you know, as a, as a family mm. uh, at a time when there was so many people talking about 
queer kids um, and the fact that our parents couldn't marry or that, you know, us as children would be damaged in some way from our, by our parents' relationship. Mm. So that film took many iterations before it became Gaby Baby mm. with Charlotte Mars. Yeah, because it was um, an ABC half-hour thing, right? Yeah, yeah. We, made, um, we made a film called Growing Up Gaby, yeah, which was yeah. a half-hour kind of short version of the feature. But mm. in actual fact, we started, we, we wanted to make this feature mm. first mm. and there's these crazy loopholes, which I'm sure you know about being a young filmmaker in... Screen Australia and with broadcast where you need broadcast credits yeah. in order to get funding, but in order to get funding, you need broadcast credits. Yeah. And it's like, how is anyone supposed to <laughs> make a film? And there was incredible um, initiative, which was set by ABC called Opening Shot at that time, oh, right. which just yeah. allowed people that sort of first step in to be mm. able to make a film without a credit. Mm. Um, and so we kind of had this amazing idea for this feature and then had to step backwards and make uh, the TV half hour yeah. so that we could get funding to make the feature. Right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, there are is some, like, shared footage across the two projects. But uh, right. I think Growing Up Gaby is a much more kind of um, traditional doc in a way. It mm. has me in it as mm. um, telling my story and oh, confronting my own family and yeah. asking questions. Right. And it has the beautiful obdoc of the younger kids, yeah. Gus and Ebony and Graham and Matt, and then it also uh, jumps into the older um, kids who are of my generation of queer mm. spawn mm. who are kind of reflecting um, on their childhoods and everything that's sort of going on, was going on at that time during the fight for marriage equality. Your your body of work is uh, kind of has a lot been about children. Um, and was that something you realised you really enjoyed exploring after Gaby Baby or was it, like, something that you had always thought about? Yeah, I mean, I think that creatively we're led in directions that sometimes we're not completely cognisant of at the time and it's only in retrospect that we look back and see the patterns and realise that we've, you know, been making a very similar film over and over again. <laughs> um, but with... Yeah, certainly my experience of making Gaby Baby, I learnt so much from those four incredibly wise, articulate, um, learned young people who were in that film. And I think that they showed me like how beautiful it is when you give the platform and the agency and autonomy to young people to speak their truth. Mm. Um that idea for Gaby Baby really was that everybody was talking about us, kids mm. with gay families. Mm. They were telling us that our parents couldn't marry. They were telling us we would be damaged in some way. Um, and no one was talking to the kids. So it really felt like a missing voice in the public debate around marriage equality. Mm. And so the idea of the film was let's listen to the kids they don't need saving. They don't need looking after. They don't need your worry and your care. They just need you to listen to them because they know what they want and they're not hypothetical. We're mm. here. Yeah. And I think um, similarly coming into In My Blood It Runs, um, yeah, that was also, you know, another area where everybody feels like they need to save and First Nations young children or everybody knows what's best for them, but so rarely do we listen to them. 
So, yeah, there was definitely a theme building um, and coming into Dream Life of Georgie Stone, which is also about speaking to the voice, um, speaking to young transgender people about what, you know, in this case, Georgie, about how she feels about um, her identity and her life. Um, so, yeah, mm. I I love children. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that they're so wise. And I think as we grow up as adults, we become so complicated and our vision is blurred of morality and the things that are important and core to us. I think sometimes people can lose their compassion. Mm. And so spending an hour and a half in a cinema with some really cool kids that can sort of jolt that heart back into place is really valuable. Yeah. Something I especially wanted to ask about um, in My Blood It Runs is how you were selected for the Sundance Music and Sound Lab, which is really cool. And um, I think it, it really shows because In My Blood It Runs is not just a really captivating story, but it's also incredibly cinematic. And I love some of like the two, three, five aspect ratio. Um, and the color grade was gorgeous. And half of it, the exterior stuff shot during Magic Hour. It was just like, incredibly cinematic for a doco and um so yeah what did the um what did the Sundance Lab get you like or uh, what did that involve rather it was so incredible mm. going to the Sundance um um lab at Skywalker Sound Studios um we you know I think that you always apply for the things that you kind of are on your dream list. Mm. Uh, and I was so, so thrilled to be accepted. What it looked like was going over to um, LA and going to the Skywalker Studios and spending a week with the amazing people at Sundance Institute. And we got paired up with a young emerging sound composer. I was paired with uh, a composer called uh, Amit May Cohen. Oh, okay. And she was really amazing. She, um, we, I mean, basically you spend all this time developing your work and sharing and listening to each other, um, mm. both directors and sound composers and really beginning to understand how we, how to speak the language of sound in order to, and communicate better. Mm. I think, because it's really a completely different language and it's very hard to find music um, that fits. Mm. Um, and then we wrote scenes, um, a number of cues together, like mm. three or four cues for the movie that we were making. And for me, that was in My Blood It Runs. Mm. And then they introduced an entire, like, full orchestra who played, so they wrote out all of the sheet music and had a whole orchestra playing those cues oh, wow. um, and then, you know, mixing and all the way through so mm. that you came out with, like, a beautiful direction for mm. the music of the yeah. film um, and had this amazing experience, which, to be honest, as a documentary filmmaker, it's unlikely I'll ever have a budget <laughs> to actually have a full orchestra. <laughs> so it actually created quite a lot of problems because of then, then, of course, I fell in love with the music <laughs> and I couldn't fucking afford it. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really amazing. Actually, yeah. In My Blood It Runs does have um, a co-score with um, Benjamin and with Amit 
sharing mm. um, sharing the music. So they ended up collaborating together because I mean, oh. it had developed such a beautiful sound for the film. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. What point um, in the like had you had? Did you have like a rough cut when you went into that, or like a picture lock or something? Not a picture lock. We mm. had um, we had. I don't even know if we had a rough cut to be honest. I think we had um, a lot most a lot of scenes and mm. um yeah maybe maybe a first a first cut um yeah and one other thing to say about the beautiful sound that Amit came up with was I think you know for that project it was all about Dewan's agency mm. all about him sort of taking control of his life but also um you know this idea of his nangra and his sort of internal power but all his also his like power as a young healer and we recorded an, him um, sort of body percussion all over his ah. body, so like tapping and yeah. popping in his mouth and yeah. um, then a whole bunch of young people um, from his community, all of his cousins and brothers and sisters and oh. stuff, and all of the kids just had, like, a really fun time in the studio making all of, like, weird oh, they body came sounds. they to LA? They didn't come oh, to LA, okay, but they right. recorded it. Yeah. And then we, me, Matt, and the kind of unique aspect I suppose to the score of In My Blood It Runs is that it's all like body percussion and Duan's like actual clapping like all the way through it which yeah. is sort of his you know happy grounded sound. My favourite cue in the film is actually um, when Duan is just going out to country to mm. Sipmara for the first time mm. um, in the film and they're leaving the sort of confines and restrictions and heaviness of town mm. of Alice Springs and Bantua and uh, he's got his head out the window and there's just you know uh, yeah. wind through his hair and yeah. you're looking out over the country um, and there's a beautiful track that's sort of just opening out um, of with clapping and yeah. you know a beautiful sort of yeah sense of grounded resilience in, yeah. in it and that's that's one of the first um, tracks that we made with Amir Pant Skywalker uh, Lab. Yeah. Um, the other thing to say about Skywalker is it's just so cool to go there <laughs> and they have, you know, a massive studio for Foley yeah. and every single, you know, item that's been used in all of the movies that you've ever seen. Yeah. You know, it's the, you know, the special instrument that they created for the sound of Tinkerbell <laughs> uh, and, and like just a lot of sound nerds. Yeah. Uh, you can really like fall into that black hole of like of... Yeah, trying to find the perfect sound for, yeah. for any movie, which yeah. is sometimes the most unusual objects. Yeah. Um, and did they, like, mix as well? Or... Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, we actually went back. We made the music and we actually did the mix at Skywalker. So we, yeah. went, we went back to Skywalker and when we were finishing the film, Kim Patrick mm. uh, was the sound designer that was also ah, matched with us right. yeah. who was... Uh, she works full time at Skywalker, so yeah. she'd, you know, come off a huge Marvel movie and then be <laughs> yeah. working on In My Blood It Runs. Yeah. And that was really beautiful too, mm. that collaboration. So it was me, Amit and Kim um, working together. And I think for all of the sound designers at Skywalker, they loved working on these small documentaries mm. because they get to, you know, manage the entire sound design as opposed yeah. to just, you know, working on an explosion for five months. <laughs> To get on to The Dream Life of Georgie Stone, which is why we're here today, I saw it um, at Sydney and I'm really glad I got to see it in a cinema because it was 
um, incredibly like tonal and cinematic. And I found it really interesting that it was kind of your most um, not abstract, but stylistic doco to date. Um, what kind of like led to that decision? Yeah, I think that you're right. I'm. We've, I love what I love most about the film is its non-linear kind mm. of style. And um, for those who don't know, it's um, yeah, you're kind of falling in and out of the dreams and memories of Georgie Stone, who's a young trans activist uh, actor, and um, and you're falling in and out of her memories as she's um, undergoing gender affirmation surgery. Um, and it's very, it's really, it's about all of the moments that made Georgie. You know, mm. we made, we started filming when she was 14 and it was a long, long, long time ago. And we didn't know what the film was going to be. And um, we sort of allowed that to be a sort of a collaborative journey of exploration as to the kind of story that Georgie would eventually want to tell. And I think it came from a few ways. Firstly, that she'd already done a lot of current affairs. She'd already mm. had an Australian story about her. She felt that she'd already told that kind of uh, more informative um, story that is educating mainstream audiences about what it's like to be a trans young person. And so we wanted to reach for something that was a bit different. We wanted to reach for something that would make you connect with her, would um, allow us to sort of feel and go on this journey with her and not be bogged down by information and mm. um, medical descriptions and legal battles. Um, and the other really beautiful thing was the archive that her family had taken of her and her twin brother Harry since they were born mm. which is just a filmmaker's absolute delight it's got you know the moment where her mum kisses the twins when they're first born it's got Georgie twirling across the lounge room floor when she's you know in a tutu at age four mm. uh, then it skips to a beautiful interview that her father is giving her just um is interviewing her just before she goes into her first round of court decisions to try and understand his daughter and kind of uses, I suppose, a level of evidence for the people that are telling her she can't be who she is. Mm. And looking at this footage, it was um, so beautiful but also so fragmented and disconnected over such a long period of time and then also me filming over such a long period of time we didn't have scenes that kind of built up to a, mm. a certain one big moment. Mm. It really was about, you know, all of these moments that make Georgie Stone in that first chapter of her becoming, mm. which is having a cup of tea with her mum at the bench, you know, it's, uh, you know, having a crush on your first boyfriend, um, boy, and, you know, having your heart broken. Mm. Um, or for her, these, like, massive moments of, you know, seeing a doctor for the first time when she's... Um, trying to access, you know, hormone treatment. And so, yeah, just after talking with Georgie over a long time, she was like, I just want to make something, you know, beautiful and about memory and a study in memory. Um, so we connected with the amazing producers, Matt Bates, Sophie Hyde, Lisa Sherrard, um, under the kind of house of close productions, uh, which is what I made in my blood it runs with. Mm. But I think in particular Sophie Hyde and Matt Bate were amazing creative producers as mm. well as sort of traditional producers. 
um, because they'd worked a lot with archive and are really excited, interested in um, shifting and playing with form. Mm. Um, Matt Bate made a beautiful film called um, Sam Klemke's Time Machine, which is similarly like an archive-built film. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of all of those minds in the room together with Georgie mm. that went, oh, we could do something really beautiful and something that is um, not conventional here mm. with this project. Yeah. And so you'll, like, after spending hours and hours in Georgie's archive, you'll see that when she's four and nine and 12, she curls her hair behind her ear mm. and yeah. so we cut all of those moments together as yeah. sort of the time travel between scenes yeah. and and memories yeah. and what that also shows is Georgie's beautiful consistency of self through time which uh, really flies in the face of naysayers that say that children can't understand themselves or they they can't land on a gender identity at such a young age it's just you know it's proof of Georgie's mm. um beautiful, like, confidence in Mm. who she is from such a young age. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to... That was something I wanted to talk about is the match cuts and how impressive they were. And um, it just, like, the entire thing showed such an incredible command over, like, the archival stuff, uh, the archival footage. Um, And so there must have been heaps of that, right? There must have been a lot of kind of trawling through stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so was there, I, I, I thought the kind of length of it, the half hour really suited that tone. Was there a point where you were thinking about trying to do a feature out of it? Yeah, we, we were. We, um, we wanted to do a feature early on. Mm. In actual fact, the first idea was that we would make three half hours oh. over... 40 years, so continue to film 40. Georgie throughout her That's whole life. Awesome. Um, which, you know, may still happen, but you know, <laughs> after you spend six years making one, you're kind of like, Phew, all right, that was a lot. So we'll see if we come back to that idea. But yeah, um, yeah I think when we arrived at this, this beautiful direction for um, the, you know, slipping through memories, it just felt like the film didn't need to explain everything. Yeah. We didn't, it actually didn't need to be a feature. It, mm. We could tell something that really packed a punch that was mm-hmm. um, shorter and it was actually quite nice working with Netflix because they allowed a lot of freedom for what mm. length the story needed to be and that's yeah. the beautiful uh, freedom, I suppose, of working with, um, yeah, a streaming platform is that there isn't a set amount of minutes that you have to fit into a TV hour or something like that. So really enjoyed that yeah. time. Um, and I also have to say that working as a lot of kudos to the editor, to Brian, Mace, Brian Mason, um, this really is an editor's film in a way and mm. we worked really collaboratively and there's a lot of ideas but, you know, that beautiful pacing through it yeah. um, and building of tension and, you know, slipping through time and just finding you know, sometimes a cut only works because you found the perfect frame in mm. a film like this. Mm. Um, so that was, um, yeah, a really beautiful and long process yeah. of editing. Yeah, how long How long was the editing or was it a kind of like spread over a long time? It was spread over a long time. I, I like to do the sort of rough cuts of a lot of films, but there was a lot of uh, sort of testing the theory. So, we, you know, we're in the edit with... 
um, and producer Matt Bate, you know, early on trying to do like proof of concepts and then we all sort of went back and forth and then we were editing through COVID. So, you know, there was a mm. number of jumping in the car and crossing a border, you know, late at night because we couldn't, <laughs> couldn't uh, wouldn't be able to get home the next day. So yeah. in some ways the edit was very long because it was hard but also because of it was fraught with the timing. Yeah, yeah. And was um, did Netflix come on pretty early? Netflix came on at Fine Cut stage. Ah, cool, cool. Um, we were actually working, going to work with um, another platform, distribution platform, and got you know very far into contracting mm. before we had to pull out. Um, and that's another thing to say about this film is that we've understand the kind of vitriolic and horrendous conversations that are happening about trans people mm. in the media, but, you know, across the world by the uh, extreme right wing. And uh, our duty of care to Georgie is incredibly important, as it is with any documentary, but mm. um, taking that responsibility as, a, as filmmakers and as a film team to hold and walk alongside Georgie was mm. uh, paramount. And previous um, platforms couldn't commit to the level of duty of care that we required. And so we decided to part our ways at really last minute yeah. <laughs> moment. So um, that's also, there's been a lot of um, complications, I yeah. suppose, to um, work to our values uh, as filmmakers at um, Unquiet Collective and at Closer. Mm. Um, yeah, so Georgie... Yeah, so they came on at, at fine cut stage and, yeah, really were, were the best the best option in yeah. the end. It's funny that how sometimes setbacks can, can be positive in the long term. Yeah. Well, that kind of ties into something I wanted to ask towards the end, which is, like, um, one of the reasons I admire you so much as a filmmaker is your kind of uh, uncompromising commitment to uh, the... Pr- protecting of the participants in your film and making them involved and making them part of the creative process um, and really centering the film around them. And it's especially refreshing in a kind of documentary landscape and industry where so often you're told not to give participants any right to see or influence the cut or have them like sign their life away and not really be involved with the edit or anything creative like how how early did you come to that realization and what what do you think of people who don't work in your way of working um well yeah thank you and I think there's been a lot of um thinking about the ethics of documentary filmmaking and, um, yeah, a lot of time spent working out how to push up against those conventions that, as you mentioned, we're all taught when we're at film school. Um, I suppose for me the, you know, the pattern of thinking began when I started making Gaby Baby and I Mm -hmm. think that's why it's actually a really good idea for all documentary filmmakers and filmmakers to somehow start with something that comes from themselves Mm. because then we know what that feels like to be 
followed with a camera or to have the things that we care about represented and how important it is that that representation is correct and feels authentic and true. Mm. I really think you can create harm if stories are taken from us and skewed and then uh, distributed into the world. So it was really important to me that with Gaby Baby there was an authenticity to that story and that those young people, uh, people's lives were represented correctly and I knew what that felt like having been one myself. Um, I think I really, that making Gaby Baby, it was, I had good intentions and, um, you know, we went about the project in a way that totally centred those young people and they were involved in decisions but it was still informal. Mm. Um, they were sitting in cuts, they watched rough cuts, you know, we had amazing conversations about what the film should be about but it was informal. Mm. Going into Gaby Baby, I mean, sorry, going into In My Blood It Runs, um, I was very aware that I was not part you're not a First Nations person and thought long and hard for, you know, for a long time about whether um, I was the right person to make that film. And in the end, we decided to honour Dwan and his family's decision and request for us to make that film. But we put in place a big sort of process around the film and around those um, subjects in the film to ensure that they genuinely had power over their representation and I learned so much from the people that I worked with like um, Larissa Barrent, like uh, Rachel Edwardson, um, like Sophie Hyde and also spent a long time researching the history of exploitation in documentary mm. and the way that um, I suppose film has been used to um, control uh, the truth and mm. people's stories and continue the marginalisation of um, of certain communities. And so that was a real deep dive mm. and a lot of learning. Mm. And I'm really proud of what we did with In My Blood It Runs. It's by no means perfect because I don't know if any film is because we're in a constant state of learning. But it just made me really deeply understand that we are on the cusp of a huge revolution in nonfiction filmmaking where I think... Yeah, we, we cannot continue to tell stories in the way that we have in the past as mm. an industry and we need to find ways to genuinely share power and offer um, a you know, place at the table in, in stories and representations, especially when working with marginalised communities. Mm. Um, otherwise, we are just reinforcing the power structures that, you know, often in documentary we aim to dismantle. Mm. Um so, yeah, I suppose in, in, in My Blood It Runs, that process of good intentions became formal. Mm. Um, it, you know, there were contracts, there was, um, oh, you know, there was yeah. credits that were yeah. given to Dwan and his family as, yeah. as collaborating directors. Mm. They share equal profit to the film, uh, to me. Yeah. Um, so a whole range of things that actually, like, put in practice the... The feelings that I've had, but also, you know, the amazing learnings and work and experience of all the people that I was working with. And there's a real push for that, obviously, by other First Nations um, directors and filmmakers and the industry in terms of um, the direction that Screen Australia is pushing people in as well with their pathways and protocols, mm. documentation and um, around First Nations stories. But I mm. think that should apply to all stories. Mm. 
Um, and yeah, and I suppose dream life of Georgie Stone is just an, another iteration of that process where again, Georgie is a creative producer. She's acknowledged for the time that she spent being a collaborator on the project. Mm. Um, and But that process, again, looked very different because each film is its own unique structure, mm. um, which is devised, you know, in my opinion, by the people in the film and the filmmakers at that central, central point of creative control. Mm. Um, but your question about, like, how do I feel about other filmmakers, I think that... Every filmmakers work in really different ways. Mm. This is what I'm focused on, what I'm really excited about and a process that we're continuing to develop with a new impact distribution company called Unquiet Collective, which mm. is essentially that core team from In My Blood It Runs. Mm. We just all fell in love with each other and decided <laughs> to work with each other, with each other ongoing and, um, and we're really um, grounded by a connection over value-based filmmaking. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't judge other people. I think that, um, everyone has their own path and not every documentary, um, what, you know, is not every subject that you would be able to share power with the core, with, you know, the people at the center. Mm. Um, and certainly there's a lot of questions around sharing power, obviously, with people who aren't your core characters because sometimes they're the adversaries in your story or, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of nuance and, and flexibility around this model. But mm. um, in the kinds of films that I'm interested in making, I think that, um, yeah, we really do need to re, uh, rethink the ethics mm. that are taught to us. Yeah. And with the moments in that kind of collaboration and the editing where it came to like killing your darlings a bit or like disagreeing with your collaborators um that like kind of made it difficult or but I imagine it was just all part of a fun process um it's not all fun like it's you know uh, everything that's in the dream life of Georgie Stone every moment every scene has had hours of consultation of conversation of you know, questioning of uncertainty of, you know, coming back doubt, you know, of coming mm. back and really interrogating the reason why it's in, in there. Um, and I think that there's often this idea that if we share power with the people in our film, that they won't let us put the most emotional bit in or the most dramatic bit in or, mm. or something for fear of it being sensational. But my experience is actually that if you share power and you genuinely let them know that it, at the end of the day it is their choice what goes in and out, mm. then you capture more intimate footage in the first place because people feel safe mm. to share. Um, and even afterwards, you know, there are lots of moments in that film that are so intimate. I don't even know if I would feel comfortable to share those moments because <laughs> I'm a very private person. Like, but yeah. Georgie came around because she saw the value of it. So we had yeah. time to talk about why it's in and to ensure that the context of those moments was really, really clear so mm. that people couldn't misconstrue the, you know, uh, the, those very intimate, um, you know, moments. So I think that, um, Overall, it just it doesn't stop you always from putting things in, although that is absolutely a risk and you need to be okay with that. But usually it makes them more powerful because, 
you know, Georgie is the one that understands the context of her own emotions better than anyone. Mm. And um, she, for her to have a chance to ensure that that's presented in an authentic way is really, um, you know, a gift to a filmmaker. Mm. Well, we're going to have to wrap up in a second, but I always like to ask, um, what do you got on next? Not today. What are you on? What what what's what are you working on next? Um, I I have a few things in development, but um, still a bit early to to sort of talk about. Mm. My main project at the moment is my nine month old baby, who's <laughs> like a whole other, yeah, a whole like a film project and yeah. PhD and impact campaign <laughs> all in, all in one. So I'm sort of funneling all of my years of studying children and parenting into <laughs> into into practice. Yeah. Um, but I suppose the last thing to say is just that if people are interested in backing and supporting um, the dream life of Georgie Stone and a number of sort of impact goals that have been set by Georgie and Transcend, which is our partner organisation, then you can go on the website, which is dreamlifefilm.com. I'll put a link uh, in the show description to that Dream Life website where Maya and her team have developed a really brilliant impact campaign around the issues facing young transgender people. Um, It's also available to watch worldwide on Netflix, so check it out now. Follow the podcast on Facebook. Just look up Sam Perspective Podcast. Or you can check out uh, my antics on Instagram, at Alfie Faber. And I've also been uh, loving life on Letterboxd recently. Letterboxd is good fun. Check out my uh, reviews of Maya's films there. I'm at Alfie Faber. Or if you ever want to directly chat to me, just for a little chit chat, you can contact the podcast at contact at soundperspectivepodcast.com if you ever have any feedback. Thanks again to Maya for chatting. Um, And thanks for listening. I'll catch you on the next one.